We've been spending our time considering the life of Elijah in the second half of First Kings. Uh, and, I, and I want to take a break from that as we're about to move into Second Kings and spend time with uh, a short prophecy given by the prophet Micah because the things that he prophesies are essentially during the time frame of Second Kings. You can see uh, in Micah 1 and verse 1 that he's prophesied in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and, and Hezekiah, essentially the majority of Second Kings. And he's going to speak about the northern and the southern nations as he prophesies. And so when we look at Micah and what he says... And then we come back to Second Kings. I think there's going to be a, a startling contrast of the kind of hope that Micah prophesies of in the face of the staggering wickedness that is going on in Second Kings. Uh, the other thing that I think is extremely valuable about, about Micah is that uh, he he's essentially has three messages. And in those three messages puts forward three different points. He will tell the people why God is judging them. He will then tell them what he expects them to do. And finally, then you have God declaring what he's going to ultimately do for them. And in those pictures and really answering the questions of what does God want and what is God doing, we're going to see not only huge pictures concerning Christ and his arrival, but as well as important teachings about what God expects of us. And so that's where we're going to spend our time. I'm looking at this being a, a four-lesson series, so rather quick. Uh, and then we will come back to Second Kings and we'll look at the life of Elisha uh, and the amazing things that he does and a lot then of the foreshadowing of Christ that is seen in those things. So tonight we'll be in Micah chapters 1 and 2. Micah chapter 1 and Micah chapter 2. Uh, the opening is, is powerful as verse 2 just simply begins by saying everybody needs to listen to me. Verse 2, hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like Wax before the fire like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. And what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten in pieces and all her wages shall be burned with fire and all her idols I will lay waste for from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. 
powerful introduction that Micah gives. And notice the imagery that's given in verses 2 and 3 is the Lord is coming out of his heavenly temple. Here God is getting up and he is moving. And did you notice the, the terrifying imagery of God moving out of his temple? It says there in verse 4, the, the mountains melt under him. Let's kind of get that idea in your mind is God just walks out of his heavenly temple and as he comes to the earth the mountains melt beneath him verse 4 the valleys are splitting open it's just melting like wax before the fire and the just pouring down like water just imagine your majestic mountain is just flooding down and just turning into wax and melting away under the power of God and as that picture is being given, you have to ask, well, why is God doing this? Why is God trampling over the earth? Why is he arisen from this place and is bringing this kind of judgment? And the answer is awfully startling in verse 5 because he says it's for the sins of Israel and for the sins of Judah. But, but notice at the end of verse 5 what he says. What is the transgression of, of Jacob? So what's the transgression of Israel? Samaria. Now Samaria is the capital city of Israel. And again in verse 5. And what is the high place in Judah? Now remember high places are places for idolatry. Where you would go and worship your foreign gods like the Baal. So, so what's the high place in Judah? Jerusalem is the location for the idolatry, the image is that the capital cities of these two nations are where the worst of the sins are being committed. And so here judgment is going to come from God because the heart of idolatry and the, the key place where sins are being committed against God is coming from the capital cities themselves, from the very kings of these two nations. And so the power structure of these two nations is established in idolatry. And they are worshiping foreign gods. And God now is ultimately going to act, as verse 6 and 7 describe, laying waste to the foundations, destroying the idols. God is not going to have this anymore. Which leads Micah, in verse 8... To say, I will lament and wail, and I will go stripped and naked, and I will make lamentation like the jackals and, and mourning like the ostriches. Here is, is the prophet now wailing on behalf of the nations for what they have done, Israel and Judah alike. Listen to it in verse 9. Her wound, speaking of Samaria and Israel, is incurable, and it has come to Judah, it has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. The sins of Israel are depicted as if they're spreading out of the capital city and then just kind of moving through all of Israel. But it doesn't stop at the border of Israel and seeps into Judah and even goes even to Jerusalem itself. The city of David was supposed to be the city of God is now steeped in this. And so the imagery is almost as if sin is like spreading through the nations and even to the capitals themselves. And verses 10 through 16 uh, really give some humor, though when you read verses 10 through 16, this is one of those times where you say things are clearly lost in translation. 
you'll notice it says like in, in verse 10, tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. And in Bethlehem, roll yourself in the dust. And if you'll just scan your eyes down, each verse just describes city after city after city after city and something about them. And what's happening here is there is a wordplay taking place with the name of the city and then a play is being done on its geography or its name. For example, in verse 10, using the Bethlehafra, that word means, that town's name meant house of dust. And so notice verse 10 says, so to these people in the house of dust, roll yourself in the dust. And so each of the phrases, each of the cities that's given in this paragraph is doing that. So modern example, living in Pittsburgh is the pits. That's what Mike is doing right now is he's doing word plays on the city or really more accurately, no love in Philadelphia would be a very appropriate example. Philadelphia means brotherly love, the city of brotherly love. And you would have Micah going, no love in Philadelphia. So all of these towns that are being listed, it's a reversal that's happening. They're speaking of the shame and the sin and the wailing and the difficulty that they're going to experience. And so it's lost in us as you read, you know, giving these parting gifts to these cities and a deceitful thing in this city. But understand there's a wordplay happening in each one of them describing you are going from prosperity and blessing to devastation, to dust, to mourning, and, and to wailing, such that verse 16 draws the conclusion essentially now, to exile you will go. To exile you will go. Because of your idolatry, because you have refused the Lord, to exile you are now going to go. Which now brings something I think fascinating, because chapter 2 now is going to describe the sins of the people. I'm going to tell them, Here's what you've done. He's going to put his finger. He's already said in chapter one, idolatry is an issue. But let's look at what this idolatry looks like in verse one of chapter two. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. And they covet fields and seize them and houses and they take them away. And they oppress a man in his house and a man in his inheritance. And so one of the pictures is given is that they just spend all of their time devising evil. You know, the thought process is to say it's essentially 24-7. Even when they lie in bed, they're thinking about and imagining how they're going to commit more sins the next day. And so they're plotting and devising wickedness. Verse 2 is also sharp because rather than being content with their prosperity, they're coveting other people and they're oppressing and taking from them. Even though they have, it says in verse 2, they covet fields and they seize them. They're taking houses, oppressing a man in his house, taking his inheritance. All throughout here is a picture of the evil that is being devised as they try to take and take and take. All they want is more wealth. They're not content. They covet what others have and they continue to do that day in and day out. And so God says in verses three through five, your wealth is so important to you. You think your prosperity is so great. I will take it from you. You're not going to have any of it left. You want your wealth so bad. 
I'm going to remove it from your hands. And so verses 3 through 5, he describes how he is devising disaster against them because of their wickedness. And they're not going to have anything left. Verse 5, they won't even have their property line left. God's going to take it all from them because they've spent so much of their time pursuing wealth. Now, after Micah says all that, what do you think the people are going to say? Look at verse 6. This is what they preach. Do not preach. One should not preach such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? I love this response that the people have. Here Micah is going around saying, your idolatry is horrible. God is going to judge you and you are uh, oppressing people. You're trying to take their wealth. You're devising evil. And here's the people's response. Micah, don't preach like that. That is not what we want to hear. We don't want to hear about judgment and sin. And further they say, that's not the kind of God we serve. Now, God would never do such a thing like that. Has he really grown impatient with us? God is slow to anger. You can imagine them quoting back to Micah, you know, Exodus 34. Lord is slow to anger. What are you talking about? He's not going to do these kinds of things to us. So, Micah, you need to stop preaching about those things. And Micah's response is pretty funny because if you notice verse 11... Micah says, if a man should go about in utter wind and lies saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for these people. <laughs> so You don't want to listen to what I have to say. You just want somebody to come along and say, keep living it up and do what you want. Jenny, just lying to you, full of hot air, just telling you things that you want to hear. He says, that would be the preacher for you. You don't want to listen to what God has to say, but you want somebody who will pat you on the back and say, keep doing what you're doing. Keep living in your pleasures. Tell us that we're doing great. That's the kind of preacher they want. And so that's what Mike is up against as he proclaims God's word to the people and tells them how they need to change. Now, I know it's hard for us to understand a culture like we are hearing about right here of a world that's full of corruption and desiring wickedness and and is just consumed by wealth and lacks contentment and thinks that God would never judge or do anything about it and just tell us we're doing fine. I know that is hard for us to get our minds around, but just imagine it for a moment that God does not accept that. That so often we want to paint God into that kind of box and say, well, God doesn't care. God doesn't care about our pursuit of wealth. He doesn't care of how we live our lives in, in this time. And, and God is, is patient. He would never bring judgment. And so just tell us the good things. And Micah says, that's not what God wants to say to us. That God is trying to warn us. And he tells us that we are doomed If our lives mirror what is going on in the nations of Israel and Judah, if our lives are consumed with wealth, that our desire is for more and more and more, and that we cannot be content with what we have, if we are devising for wickedness, if we are spending our time thinking about how can I commit that sin later on today, or what will I do tomorrow in, in devising evil, 
This is the kind of thing that God is putting his finger on and saying, you need to watch out because I'm going to send you into exile. And I hope that at this moment, as we take a pause, just check our hearts about that as you listen to what the people are doing and what their idolatry looked like. Yes, they had their high places, but they want wealth, they devise evil, and they want to be told that they're doing great as they do it. And so Micah then brings out that message to Israel and to Judah. Now that puts, I think, God in a predicament of sorts. What's God going to do about this? Micah's proclaiming that these nations need to be judged and the exile they're going to go. And yet God has made covenant promises about bringing a Messiah through the nation. And so how is the nation going to survive this? What is God going to ultimately do to rescue his people so that he can deliver on the promises that he's made not only to Israel, but ultimately to the world? It is these last two verses that are the most stunning where we will spend the majority of our time. Look at verse Verse 12, after Micah says, you guys want a preacher who will preach to you wine and strong drink. Verse 12, here is God's words. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of people. He who opens the breach goes before them. They break through the and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them. The Lord is at their head. This is a staggering picture. After proclaiming what we have in our copies of God's word, two chapters of judgment and woes and God is going to rise up and break out against the people and melt the mountains because of their idolatry and their wickedness. The end of this first prophecy of Micah then says, but here's what the Lord will do. The Lord is going to gather his people again. He's going to gather a remnant of his people. And notice the image that he uses in verse verse 11 or verse 12. He's going to set them together, gather them like sheep into a fold, set them, verse 12, like a flock in a pasture. And then a really interesting image in verse 13 Because then Micah says, and here's what's going to happen. You're going to have someone who is going to rise up and break through the wall and lead them out. And the one that is going to lead them out is the Lord. He is going to be your head and he will also be your king. That's a phenomenal ending right there. Here's what God's going to do one day. Gather his people. And the way he's going to gather his people is he's going to break the walls down and lead them out of their slavery and put them in the pasture. And there they're going to dwell secure. And the one that's going to do that is their king. Their Lord will rescue them. Hold that image in your mind. And think about something that Jesus told as an interesting metaphor about himself. And listen to the similarities. 
Jesus says in John chapter 10 and verse 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep will follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of the stranger. You hear the parallel of what Micah was prophesying is that one day the Lord is going to come and he's going to break his sheep out and put them in a pasture. And Jesus comes along and says, here's what the good shepherd does. And what is really interesting about that is then in verse six, we're told this is a figure of speech that Jesus used with them. You know, here's Jesus going, talking about me, talking about me. I'm the guy who's come to break you free and to have you in the pasture. End of verse 6. But they did not understand what he was saying. They didn't understand. They didn't understand what he was saying. This is a problem that Jesus runs into over and over again as he tries to teach the people in the first century. It's the same problem that Mike is dealing with as he teaches the people of Israel and the people of Judah is not understanding the situation they're in. They don't see that they're enslaved. They don't understand that they're in enclosure. If you think about what Micah says in verses 12 and 13, notice what said is that the king is going to come and lead them out. Lead them out of what? You see, there's an implication of you're enclosed by something. You're blocked in. And that's why verse 13 says he's going to tear down the breach or break open the wall and lead them out. Jesus had this same discussion with the Jewish leaders on another occasion. A little bit earlier in John's gospel, John 8. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Notice the same idea. If you have to be set free, you're implying something. You're not free. You are bound. You are enslaved. You're in this enclosure and you need to be set free. Do you think the people understood? They go, oh, yes, you're the one to set us free. They answered him. We're the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They're looking at him and going, we're righteous. We're the people of God. How can you possibly tell us that we need to be set free? We're already free. We're doing just fine. Thank you very much. We're not sinners. We're not enslaved. We don't have a problem. Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin 
is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. You see, they're not understanding their spiritual condition. The people in Micah's day are not understanding their spiritual condition. They see their sins as what's the big deal. So we take people's stuff and we worship our gods and we do what we want to do. We live our lives and we enjoy our flesh and we do what seems best to us. What's the big deal? We're the people of God. Same thing here in Jesus' day. We're the people of God. We're the offspring of Abraham. How could you possibly tell us that we have a problem? And the point that Micah is making is this hopeful promise. Your sins have caused a problem so that you're enslaved. And one of the things that really the whole of the Old Testament was trying to show And what Jesus is constantly going around trying to teach the people in that day and to teach us is that you are enslaved when you are practicing sin and you are separated from God. You are exiled far from God. And what God has come to do is to lead you out of that prison. He's trying to get you out of that situation. The whole purpose That God has come is to break down the wall, break down this enclosure so that you can be set free, truly free indeed, and live the life that God wants you to live. The sad thing is, you might read this and go, well, yeah, see, people in the world, they don't understand that God has come to rescue them and save them. Micah wasn't talking to the world and neither was Jesus. He was talking to the righteous, quote unquote. He was talking to the people of God and they didn't see that they were in the enclosure of sin. They didn't see that they needed to be set free. They just said, we're doing fine. And so Micah's message is very simple, but very powerful. God has come. With a singular purpose of breaking out. He has come to break out. And he's either going to break out in one of two ways. The breakout number one that we saw in chapter one is he's going to break out against you because of your sins. You have committed sins against God. You have an idolatrous heart. You haven't worshipped God as he has called you to worship or to love him or to serve him. And so God is coming out of his temple, melting mountains and bringing judgment. That's the first breakout image. Or he's going to break out for you. Breaking down the walls that are keeping you enslaved to sin and the point of this first prophecy is essentially so which one are you going to have God do are you going to have God break out against you in wrath or are you going to have God break you free from the chains of sin that is what's being posed to these people in Micah's day it was the same message Jesus was giving when he's telling I'm the shepherd. Those who listen to my voice, I lead them out. 
Or as he said in a couple chapters earlier, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus has come offering freedom. And unfortunately, what so happens, so often happens is that we fail to see that our sins have stuck us in this enclosure. And we are captured by our sins. We struggle with them and we're unable to break free. And God is trying to say, if you'll give your life to me, if you'll listen to what I'm telling you to do, I'll get you out of that prison. I'll set you free from the things in your life that enslave you and keep you from enjoying truly an everlasting joy and a true satisfaction. And so really then I leave it with this, is that will we see that we are captured by our sins? Will we see that we are stuck by our sins? And we've been enclosed by so many of the disastrous sin choices that we make in our lives. And God is offering his hand out and saying, I want you to be free from that. I don't want you to be captured and addicted and by all of those sins anymore. But I want to give you a new life. So which breakout is the Lord going to do for you? Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father. Lord, it's amazing that you even offer the final lines that are given in this first prophecy. We are worthy of judgment. Lord, we are worthy of you coming out of your temple and melting the earth and judging us according to our deeds. And Lord, we praise you and we thank you that you have such a deep love for us and such a patience for us that you have come to set us free from our sins. Lord, I pray that you would enlighten our hearts and open our eyes to see that we are in the prison of sin and that we become captured by our desires, captured by the flesh, captured by our lust, captured by everything this world attempts to offer us. Help us to see the chains that we have that are holding us back from serving you and from enjoying you fully. Lord, forgive us for when we have gone back into the prison of sin. We so readily run right back into the very prison you have set us free from. Forgive us for doing that. And just help us to have a far greater clarity and a far greater understanding of the choice that we are making. Lord, thank you for your son that breaks us free from our sins. And thank you for delaying the judgment that we deserve so that more and more people can have opportunity to turn their hearts back to you before it's too late. Thank you, Lord, for this hope. And we pray that we would live up to what you've called us to be as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Here in a moment, we'll sing an invitation song, and we do invite you to think about where you are with God beautiful picture of God wants to break you out of sin but if we stay in the prison ultimately there will be a breakout of wrath and a breakout of judgment for not serving him the way that he has called us to can we help you in any way to come to Jesus this very evening to turn away from your sins believe in him confess him as your Lord and Savior the one your master who you will follow day in and day out
and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Can we help you in any way? Won't you come now while we stand?